0: Hello and welcome to The Rundown, the weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Shane Mataluko, and here with me on the Black History Month episode of Politics Home is Sean Bailey, London Assembly member and former Conservative London mayoral candidate, Siobhan Ahrens, co-founder of Conservatives Against Racism for Equality, and a founding trustee of the Black Equity Organisation, and Jermaine Jackman, singer, troublemaker, co-chair of Hackney's Young Futures Commission, a founding member of the Bulbab Foundation, and a member of the 1987 caucus, a collective working to increase Black male representation in the Labour Party. Our topic for today's episode, what it's like to be Black in Britain in 2022. Sean, I'll, I'll start with you.
1: Um, thank you. I think when I was younger, I'm talking like, you know, pre-10, being black in Britain was 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 openly tougher. As much people were openly racist where I used to live, I come from Labrick Grove, West London. There used to be an NF office in the estate just on the road, us, just you know, with posters and everything. It was the norm. People accepted these things. And and having a white friend was was a danger to you and them. So clearly in that sense things have moved on. You know, and I, if you speak to my uncle, who's again older than me, he'll talk about no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. So we're not in that situation anymore. I think the situation we're in now is is much more complicated because you've had black people who've been actively excluded from things. So anything from bank loans right up to school. I remember speaking to my, my grandparents and them, and them pointing out to me that black people, when they arrived, sort of Windrush generation, we were the property-owning class. We owned more property than our white counterparts. Somewhere along the way that was lost and and that's a whole conversation. But there there is an element of racism in there, but there's also an element of community breakdown in there. And when I talk about where we are now, yes, you can point out to physical facts, the poor performance of black children in school, black boys in particular. And yes, you could you could point to the system, but what I don't want people to do is take away the responsibility and the agency of the black community. Yes, some of those statistics make horrible reading, but where are we in also turning them around? If we're sitting around waiting for the white man to come and change our universe, I'm sorry, it's not gonna get changed. We have to have some, some stake in our our own future. So I'd say being a black person in this country now, we have a way to go, but it's significantly better than it was. When people tell you it isn't or it's still very bad, compare being black here to being black anywhere else in the world. And also don't disrespect our our grandparents and and, and our parents. Um, I don't know, your listeners may know Lee Jasper. Lee Jasper and I have the most different politics possible to have. But I love speaking to him. I've got so much respect for him. And the reason why is because he's a warrior for us. Yeah, he fought for black people. And I think sometimes when people just make out we're still in the 1950s, they forget about Lee Jasper and the progress that his and his ilk make and, and people on the right of Wales have made. And I think we, if we want our children to live in a better Britain, a better world, we also have to acknowledge some of the successes we've had in improving the situation of black people and, and people's response to racism.
2: Siobhan, what about you? is an absolute privilege to be a black person. I fear we always jump quickly to the things that make it hard and difficult in our day-to-day lives. But let's not forget first, especially, I'm looking at myself and I always at this time of year at Black History Month reflect on the legacy that I have been given as an Afro-Caribbean woman today that has come from a long line of Afro-Caribbean women who have hustled and made their way in order to give me what I have. And that is a privilege. And so I think that what I then look at today is how far we have come in this country, but also how much more this country has to do for us and us within it as we go forward, kind of reflecting on my own life, um, working class family, all of the usual things, but they had a goal when it came to me that I would get the best possible education everything was thrown at getting the best possible education and they didn't know everything my grandparents my mother you know didn't know what that really meant but it was something like you go to private school we'll work out how to pay for it later but you will go to private school because that is good education and then today I am sometimes being uh, looked at differently. My blackness may be called into question because I went and had a private education. That's where I think what a disservice is being done by not understanding that the reason so many people from the Caribbean and from other parts of the Empire and Commonwealth as was, came here in order to keep improving their lives, to do things better, to get more and As a result, it does mean that we aren't a homogenous carbon copy of seemingly what it is to be black, which is underprivileged and deserved. As opposed to seeing where we have difficulties continue today and what is needed to continue to improve so we have equity, but also at the same time not tarring everything with a negative brush. So being black and being British today is a privilege, and therefore we. I have a responsibility and a duty to ensure that the next generation's privilege is even better. Thank
0: you. And Jermaine, I want to now turn to you. What is it like to be black in today's Britain?
3: It's struggle. It's ancestral pain. It is trauma. It's resistance. But it is also joy. It's laughter. It's fun. It's creativity and also its ambition. It's being told at the age of 10 that you need to work twice as hard in order to make it. It's being stopped and searched countless of times, but it's also being able to put on a carnival outfit and dance down Notting Hill Road. It's the food, it's the music, it's the culture that everybody across the world loves and celebrates. I'm so happy and proud to be Black in Britain today. Siobhan and Sean rightly spoke about the journey that we as a community have made pre-migration after Windrush and the changes that this country have made and they've rightly also recognised the long road that's still ahead of us for there to be an equal playing field for us to enter that game thinking about our young Black people not just here in London but across the UK who have many different experiences of racism. Here in London, it's not so bad, but I think about young black people in Sunderland, for example, or in other parts up north, um, rural parts of the country who will be experiencing tremendous racist attacks, um, and what support we can potentially give them. So being black in Britain is all of those encompassed. It, It is that struggle, it is that pain, but it is also joy and laughter and to be able to see another black person down the street and just just nod at them. Um, and you both know exactly what you both mean. Um, that's what it means to be black in Britain today.
0: What's interesting is that I think all three of you talked about your parents or your grandparents' migratory histories. I think, I think I'm think i the only person here of a non-Caribbean background. My parents are from West Africa. But a couple of you mentioned the Windrush generation. And I'm wondering with um, the Windrush scandal that has been ongoing um, for some time now and some concerns about compensation not being afforded, um, to some of the people who've applied for compensation for being wrongly detained and deported. I wonder, in the wake of the Windrush scandal, how does that make you feel about being black in Britain today?
1: I'd say the Windrush story is more than a blip, but it's also a long time coming. So from a political point of view, it's put at the feet of the Conservatives. But of course, this is a a 30 or 40-year-old story. And this problem exploded then, but many governments of of red and blue had an opportunity to, to respond to it and didn't. I think if there's a silver lining to be taken, the government f- was contrite. They responded and they responded in a sort of, sort of financially generous way and, and they moved heaven and earth as, as governments can, because anybody's had anything to do with governments would tell you they're very slow. So the speed at which his government moved was was as quick as a government has ever moved. I asked a friend of mine, because obviously in the Jamaica community, this has been a big discussion topic. I asked a friend of mine, who's very anti the government and all this as well. Who else in the world is having this conversation? Who else in the world would have responded in this way? And he conceded I, I accept that nobody else had done that. So that's a good bit. The bad bit is on the personal level. First and foremost, if you've been through any situation linked to this, it will feel feel ugly and very unjust. That's the first thing to, to say. So almost any sort of conversation may never make you feel quite right about that. And the government has done what it can do. It might not be enough for the individual. But if it's an admin piece where you're sat there waiting for your money and somebody hasn't got to you because the Home Office is slow or, or Justice Department is slow, that will just fall, that'll feel like an extra kick in the teeth. And, and I can't say anything to make a person feel good about that. You can't, you shouldn't. I still think there's a relationship piece that needs to be done. And let's be clear, it'll be years for that to be done. It's not one leaflet, it's not one visit, it's not one pain of compensation. It's about
3: rebuilding trust and that often takes time.
0: Siobhan or Jermaine, I wonder if you have any thoughts as
3: well. I think think the scandal is a perfect example of just how systems can fail our communities. And it shows how insidious it can become. This was on the back of a hostile environment that has grown over the years. And I will admit that there are Labour MPs who also supported um, the immigration bill at the time. um, That has fed and fueled this anti-migrant rhetoric of wanting to deport. And we're seeing it today with deportations to Rwanda. We're seeing it today. And, and you know, it's that same ignorance that has, well, just saw this as isolated incidents and not connecting it to a system failure, a system that's failing our communities. One that, that again, was rooted in a hostile environment that wanted to deport Black Caribbean people who were just born there and came over here as young children. I think it's it's disgusting. Um, and Sean rightly said it, it's another kick in the teeth to now have, Loads of people still waiting on their compensation. I don't think the government acted fast enough, I'll be honest. I don't think the government are taking this as serious as they should be taking it. And I remember at the time, Theresa May even denied meeting with the Caribbean High Commissioners who are demanding that they that they meet with her she, she refused to meet with them i think is an absolute stain on our history and a stain on our democracy that you can have people who spend 50 years of their life here who have been denied health care who've been denied and been kicked out of, of their homes who have been put into prisons and then deported back to the caribbean with no family connections no knowledge of the area and we've heard unfortunate stories of people actually dying while being deported back to Jamaica and other parts of the Caribbean, I, I think is an absolute stain on our history. And I just hope that the government can really get themselves together and sort out this compensation scheme to the to those who really need it.
0: Jermaine brings up a point about the Rwanda flight. And I want to turn to Sean and Siobhan about this, because I think both of you, I think it might be fair to say, are parts of groups that want to encourage black people to join the Conservative Party or at least consider voting for a Conservative MP. And so I'm wondering with the current immigration policy, do you think that is something that would potentially turn off black voters? Do you think the Rwanda plan is sustainable if the Conservative Party wants to diversify their their voter base?
1: I think the thing I'd say is, we talk about immigration, and in a black community, immigration means one thing. In the Indian community, it means something else. I used to live in an area that had a big Polish and, and Eastern European community, and it meant something else. So our immigration conversations are all very separate. They're not sitting there worried about Windrush or, or or Rwanda. They don't see it as something that they're involved in. So I I, I don't I don't think it has that direct political. Um, association that people would like it to have. The other piece, of course, is immigration is a conversation that people who aren't immigrants have probably even more so there's a point of if this was just about you know voting numbers then probably the policy would work because the vast majority of people are not immigrants and would see it as something the government's doing but the deep the, the deeper question here is how do we make sure that we have an equitable society for everybody because if you have immigrants you have to take them on and deal with them right and there's a big conversation now between the difference between immigrants and people seeking asylum so people seeking asylum are seen as people we should just take where a rich nation will do that people Immigrants is slightly different because they add your housing numbers, they add to your unemployment, all kinds of stuff. And that I think that's a conversation that wasn't separated out when people were talking about Rwanda. And the other conversation is as well, I remember listening to the Rwandan foreign minister and a few of the people I deal with because I'm a London-wide assembly members of people speak to me from all over London write to me and and come and speak to me and they were horrified that a white nation was speaking about a black nation Rwanda as it was a third world death trap they were they were quite scandalized and they said actually they feel the racism of being talked about as people who can't accept anybody the guy said to me I bet if we were sending everybody to Sweden there wouldn't be this complaint so why can only um, white people receive um, uh, refugees or, or that's the word he used I would say immigrants he's saying why can't we receive immigrants as well which I found very interesting because the narrative put over there in the press was you're sending these people to die and Jermaine, I just put this question to you um, it's not for me to defend the government's um, policy. I, d- I didn't have anything to do with it. But you did the, the classic thing of of conflating immigration with seeking asylum. They're two very different things. And you, you talked about the tropes of people saying, you know, the impact immigrants have. That's caused. But there's also tropes around... You know people who who then challenge immigration or whatever, and and that's the problem, isn't it? We're not having a realistic conversation about immigration. What we're having is is an argy bargy where people are trying to create political positions to to shore up their sort of vote base or whatever it is. The question I'd ask you is, you know, what what would you do with the pressure between how many you can take and how many people you can prosper? When you talk about asylum, what's important? You talked about. We should provide asylum to people. And I 100 percent agree. Mm-hmm. But the way asylum is meant to work in, in the Western world is people are meant to go to the first place. They, they seek asylum first place they land. And that wasn't happening. And all of that breakdown, I think, led to the government doing some of what they did and the conversations that we're all now having. So what would you do in, in that situation? What would you do about asylum? How much money would you be prepared to pay? Where's this money coming from? Because in politics, and there's a Labour politician who said this to me, he said to me, anybody who proposes any policy should have to explain where the money is going to come from. So I'd be interested to hear that in response.
0: Um, I'm wondering, I think you've said a lot of interesting things, but I'm wondering about the the critique of, The idea that critiquing Rwanda is racist. I was wondering if you could speak more on that, because I think some people would say, you know, the government's um, website indicates that there are a lot of um, dangers in Rwanda for people wanting to visit Rwanda as a tourist, for example. So isn't it not legitimate to, to critique the government for sending people to Rwanda?
1: Not as Rwandans saw it. Rwanda has worked very hard to, to build itself up as a nation. Rwanda isn't on any watch list as far as Rwanda are concerned. So to have people in the media talk about Rwanda as if it's some third world backward country full of black people who don't know how to accept people from other nations was very hurtful
3: to Rwanda. Um, I, going back to, to Sean's point, um, the Rwanda policy is about asylum seekers, the processing of asylum seekers. And I think that it sends the wrong message out to the world, especially at a time where we're trying to be this global Britain post-Brexit, that this is not our problem, this is someone else's problem. Especially given the UK's history on standing up for the asylum seekers, standing up for those individuals who who, who who are fleeing war and conflict. Instead of creating safe and proper channels for people to come over from wherever they're coming from, because we're seeing more and more people on dinghy boats crossing the channel and those and I think you can all agree with me that these are dangerous routes. People should not be going through those routes. We should be creating safer channels for people to be processed in this country. Or do a, a deal with France to help process those asylum seekers and those people who are fleeing war and conflict. We shouldn't be turning people away and we shouldn't be turning people to to, to Rwanda. It just sits very uncomfortably with me. We're having this deficit mindset of this country doesn't have enough or this country can't accommodate for it for, for those. But this country was able to find billions and billions of pounds to line the pockets of people who were setting up companies during the pandemic to to take off of the taxpayer. I think you can all agree with me that when the government wants to try and find the money to do what it needs to do it can find the money to do what it needs to do so why do they then turn a blind eye to those who are fleeing war people are in search for a, a better life and i think it, it's great that they come into the uk in search of that
1: but i have a question for you jermaine right, go ahead. we never talk about the, the the terrible regimes these people are fleeing from shouldn't we be doing more about making more of the world safer more of the world more economically viable so people don't feel the need to its to, to Sean, sure, you,
3: you and I are singing from the exact same hymn sheet, but I want to sing an extra hymn for you. Which country made these places unsafe? Which country destabilised these governments? Which country created these inequalities? And I think that we really do need to look at our history and our involvement in a lot of these conflicts. Let me finish this quick point before I forget. One thing that we're not yet talking about is the climate migration that we're about to encounter. Parts of the world are becoming a place where people can't, can no longer live. It's become, because of the, the heavy rains, rising sea levels, scorching heat. My country that my parents are from, or Guyana in South America, that's below sea level already. Guyana's already sit, sitting below sea level. With the rising sea levels, my village that my parents are from called Pleasant, which is just by the seawall, is flooded time and time again. These people will eventually move. And we're not yet talking about the impact climate will have on migration. And if we don't get our narrative and our, our, put our moral hearts in the right place, we're gonna be turning more and more people away. And that's not the country that I want to be represented in.
0: The three of you, do you think we talk enough about the diversity amongst the Black British community itself? So even I often think about, for example, that even in our data sets that we have produced by government, it often says Black Caribbean or Black African. But amongst Black African communities, um, there are many, many, many differences. Coming from Nigeria is different from coming from Somalia. And even within Caribbean communities, there's lots and lots of differences. Coming from Jamaica in the 1950s is very different to coming from Antigua in the 1990s. And so I wonder, do you think that we talk enough about diversity? Amongst our communities?
2: We don't um, at all. And thank you, actually, for raising that. This lumping of black is sometimes very useful and it can be individually very empowering as well, actually. Um, I think, you know, we've all got stories of when, in fact, we've actually needed that black identity to help us in a difficult situation right and, and especially when you go into professional life sometimes when you're like the only person you know of color the only person who has that experience kind of being able to be part of a, a bigger group is is so important and it's so useful But these aren't our stories. These aren't the things that actually, when we're looking at data, help us understand where we're at and where the gaps are. I think that particularly when you're talking about with education and young people now, there are distinct differences when you're looking at third generation Afro-Caribbean. Um particularly where most live in very urban areas compared to first generation Nigerian just to use you as an example, you know and growing up in a coming to the UK and growing up in a different environment um the one size fits all doesn't actually work to be able to critique you know data and actually really understand where the gaps are where the issues are and where the solutions should be. Um, So I, I do think it is important to break it down and this isn't about, you know, in terms of siloing identity at all, but it is about looking at the solutions. And again, that kind of conflation of all black people are X, whereas it may be a socioeconomic issue, Um, you know and a geographic location issue and all of the other things that they are equally as important with addressing the issues Um, so no we don't talk about it enough we don't also celebrate those differences enough and also I am going to put it out there. We don't also then recognise the racism that actually does occur between different black groups. And I will always happily give my own example and wouldn't put it on anyone else. But I have felt it just as keenly for being a third generation Afro-Caribbean and being seen as a second class citizen by someone of a entirely different black group. Um, and the impact that that actually had on me at that time, which was just as seismic as any other racism that I have experienced and received.
1: I mean, I, I would say if we're hoping that, you know lovely white middle-class people from the middle of Shropshire are going to have a conversation about the differences between the African Caribbean and African community. That's never going to happen. They don't know
3: the differences. That's a challenge for us.
0: Jermaine, I I wonder whether you want to come in on this.
3: I'm enjoying hearing this debate. I do think the word we're missing in this also is intersectionality, about looking at the black community as an umbrella, as a homogenous group, and realising that there are different experiences that Black people will have. Underneath that, there are Black trans people, Black gay people, Black disabled people. All of those different groups have different and unique experiences. And how do we understand their experiences? How do we distill that experience and put it into data and into reports, therefore creating appropriate policies for them. And I often I often say if we work from the margins, we improve the lives of all. And I just think that here and here, I agree with most of what Sean and Siobhan are saying, but I do think that the word intersectionality and how our communities interlock with one another and how black women will have ex- different experiences to black men and not just black Caribbean people and black African people or black African women will have different experiences to black Caribbean women all of those things need to be taken into consideration when we're looking at reports and when we're taking out reports. BEO re- released their report last month um, on the lived experiences of, of Black people and their, the discrimination that they face. Um, and I, I hope the future reports that BEO do release will look at intersectionality much more and much deeper. I think that the report on the state of Black Britain was was really, grew, really good. So congratulations, Siobhan, and to the team at BEO for that.
0: So to clarify, BEO is the Black Equity Organization, which Siobhan is a part of. But I'm wondering, Jermaine, you mentioned the term intersectionality. And I think it's been interesting watching political discourse as of late, because we see more and more politicians engaging in what some might call a culture war, where people bring up terms like intersectionality or white privilege. Where do you think the culture war sits amongst the black communities that you are a part of? I wonder what your take on it is coming from a, a black British perspective.
3: I always find it funny that the only people talking about the culture war are on the right or the far right. No one else is talking about it. I'm, me, as an individual who's on the left, I'd never speak about the culture war. Um, oh, they're stalking the culture war. This is the culture war. Ain't nobody else talking about culture war but, apart from you. I just want that statue to be put into a museum. I don't want it to be glorified on on a platform on the streets of Kings and Road in Doolston. That's, that's, that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying tear it down and destroy it. Just contextualize it. Put it into a museum where relics of the past belong. I want a country that says, you know what, that is a relic of the past. You know what, we, we messed up. I'm not talking about a culture war. I don't want a culture war. British culture is my culture. Black culture shaped British culture, modern day British culture. And that is that is it's us. It's all of us.
1: It's, it's interesting that you're not having a culture war. I, I'm glad that you're not. I, I consider myself not to be having one, but let's be clear. There was one being had. And, you know, when when you talk about putting everything in a museum, I might actually agree with that. But of course, there's people who are, you know, placed in this society, who have have long relationships with family, whatever, work, whatever, who would disagree. And that's where they think the culture war's being had. They're asking, they're being asked to change and they think it's an assault on their culture. So if we like it or not, the culture war does exist. Where I can come in a direction, I don't believe it has to be a war. I think we should be able to have a conversation about everything. Uh, any, any society that wants to continue to exist must be able to um, debate any problem because a problem that you can't debate recently grows.
0: Do you not think there is too deep a divide, perhaps between the political right and the political left, say, on issues like empire, for example, or even talking about statues of slavers, where perhaps people on the right would be more open to their statues staying up, whereas people on the left would more want their statues to be taken down or put in museums?
1: But this is why there is a culture war, isn't it? Because people are using it to punish the other group. People are using it to say how wrong they are, how right we are, etc., etc. The culture war is pretty new, actually, I, I feel. I feel, it, you know, it's certainly public discourse. It's, you don't it's, think it's a
0: continuation of, say, PC Gone Mad from the early 2000s?
1: Even if it started in 1980, it's still pretty new as public discourse goes. And I think the culture war is a particular thing because PC Gone Mad felt like a third party, whereas a culture war feels like two battling groups. That, that feels different. You know, people can identify themselves left and right and get into it. PC Gone Mad felt slightly different. But my, the point I'm trying to make is... The culture war is only a war if we use it to punish. It's a debate, it's something that we don't agree on. I, we can agree not to agree on on, on the empire, we can agree not to agree on, on what's good or bad. But the point is, can we agree, can we debate, can we move forward? And that's the difference, that's what makes it a war. The word war means someone has to lose.
2: Mm, but you know what, overall I look at it on both sides and there are those on the left and the right who love talking about it actually and to me more than anything else i find it so disappointing because no story is a totally one-dimensional thing right there is bad and also good uh there is hurt and also joy and this is even more true in terms of what has gone into making us who we are today whether that's as individuals or as great britain and northern ireland and that is what is actually missing is the picking up on that discussion point and it's understanding really and it's being comfortable where it's uncomfortable and again Using that to help us continue to shape this country. We are at a crossroads where if we like, dig in too deep on these divisive issues or how I'm going to approach this issue or that issue, that we are going to entrench ourselves in that and stagnate. And all of the um, improvements and benefits and great things and why it's much better to be a black British person than it is to be black in almost any other Western nation, nation. Um, we're going to lose that. So I am sad, I am disappointed, but more so than that, I ain't got time for that. (laughs) I haven't. And all the people who have, please just go, because we have bigger and better things to be dealing with now right and i think that that is where our focus should be and anyone who's listening to this in black history month i want you to think about where we're at now and what is it that we need to do and let's be more positive in terms of those steps forward let's continue the journey that we are on to in order to improve equity access to whether it's you know education and financial empowerment you know whether it's to representation let's get on with that and leave the relics to the past jermaine should we leave the relics of the past
3: um, if they are in a museum and not glorified on a, on a statue, then absolutely. I, I well- No one's
2: glorified on any statue. <laughs> Look at the pigeons don't even glorify the statues, Jermaine. Come on, come on.
3: I'm going to honest. I'm honest if, you, if you put somebody on a statue, that's glorifying them, that's memorialising them. And I don't want to memorialise any racist so At the age of nine years old, I was able to meet my great-grandmother, who was the granddaughter of a slave. No, it triggers me. And there's trauma walking past that statue on Kings and High Road every single time. So you, we can go away, but I also think that there are different sections of society who have passions in this in this space. So if there's a section of society that would like a statue to remove, I'll encourage them. I have that debate. So I, I agree with Sean Bailey. Let's have a conversation. I think what's, what our country fails to do time and time again is a massive topic is we don't have a conversation around. We need to be taking the public on a journey with us when we're talking about whether it be changing the names of roads or taking down statues. We can't just do the action and expect people to be in agreement with us or or force anybody to be in agreement with us. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here for the public to be on a journey for us to understand that the British story is a not one. Di- is, as Siobhan said, is not one-dimensional. It's not a one-dimensional story. There are pros and cons. There are atrocities that um, that the British did during the colonial years, and there are great things that the British did in the colonial years. It's about having a conversation around that. It's not one-dimensional because, unfortunately, for the past fifty years, it has been one-dimensional. And I think the conversation now with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the the disparities that we face here in this country, people are now looking at well, what is the, that British history? What is the multifaceted and multi on all the sides of the British history? So when we're talking about um, Black History Month and what we want people to focus on, yes, I want people to look at the future and what are the steps that we need, but I also want people to think about what is this journey that we made? What is that?
1: Jermaine, I think the thing you've missed, and I could be wrong, please jump in here is talk about colonialism. It's always talked about in a negative sense. I mean, I'm Jamaican, I, I get it, but it's always talked about in a negative sense. It's always talked about in order to make people feel bad. And if there's one thing I know about people, making them feel bad doesn't then lead to them making a good decision.
3: Yes, yeah, Sean, you, you did miss my point. Uh, what I was trying to say was, is that for the past, I remember growing up in primary school, we saw the map of the world colored in pink, where British ruled. We, we saw as, as this British rule the world and rule the seas. We um, built these towns and put railways down, and, and it was always one-dimensional. It was always seen as this saviour, this white saviour that's coming to remote parts of the world to humanise people, to civilise people, and it was one-dimensional. That was my point. It has always been one-dimensional. Why did it take for me to get to university to then learn that the first concentration camps ever designed on this planet were by the British in Kenya? Why was it? But I was told about the concentration camps in, in Nazi Germany. And this is what I mean. I would love for us to have a debate about empire. All of the pros and the cons for us to have a deeper understanding of that history, a proper understanding of that history and not just a one dimensional one.
0: I'd just like to move the the conversation on. I think, um, Jermaine, you're right. I think the the British were the first to create concentration camps, but that was in South Africa. But they did also have what is described as concentration camps in in Kenya, but the first ones were in the Boer War. Mm. But moving from the past to the future it seems increasingly likely that we will have a black British prime minister. In the latest Tory leadership contest, Kemi Badenoch made a number of strides and there was a point where she was polling at the top of um, home as the person that Conservative members would most like to see as um, the prime minister. Having said that, UGov at the time that this leadership contest was going on, YouGov polled around 2,000 ethnic minorities in Britain. And 44% of black British people said that having an ethnic minority prime minister would make no difference to what it's like to be black in Britain today. And so I'm wondering for you, do you you agree with 44% of black Britons? Do you think it would be inconsequential if we had an ethnic minority prime minister? And if so, what would you like them to do in in office?
1: I'd like a good prime minister. Mm. If that prime minister is black, great. And if you look at that stat, it's, it says that's less than 50%. So most black people thought it would be a good thing. I think the symbolism is correct. I think it demonstrates to people that, that you can progress and that you should try. Um, I think what I would say, though, what's more important than a, a black prime minister is what I call ordinary success. So you'll always get Jay-Z's and Michael Jackson's and, and Obama. We are a talented bunch of people. The world would not be as good as it is. It could be better, of course, if it wasn't for black peoples across all of our, our respective nations. But, but the point is this, right? What we need is ordinary success. You need to walk down the road and the manager of Tesco's is black. You need to bump into your GP and they're black. Your MP could be black. Your teacher could be black. We just need black people everywhere like anybody else to the point where being black is not the thing. Being, you know, the first black special advisor and all that kind of stuff and people telling me and I was at an event and a, a young black girl stood up, I'll never forget it, right? I was, it was myself and Chukor Anuma there and she stopped, she said, I'm sick of hearing who it was the first black person to do A, B, C. So she said, I want to know who's the next black person and actually that's the most important thing.
2: Jermaine or Siobhan? I can only agree with Sean that fantastic, we get our first black prime minister. Great but i do not want that that's the like the one and only right that's the one and done we tick that box yay we've made it no this you know is a time when particularly this month when we should be looking at where do we have success and where can we get a hell of a lot more of it? Where do we have leaders and representatives? And grassroots is so important. You know, a privilege as a black woman is to spend a lot of time in the hairdresser and to normally go to hairdressers in an area where there are a lot of hairdressers. Mine is Peckham, love it. And I walk down the streets there And these are all small business owners, mostly women, mostly black women. And that, to me, is success. But what is not happening is they aren't getting a platform. They're not being seen or they're not even being recognized by everyone else walking around those streets, that they are a small business. They are an SME, the backbone of this country. And that is where we need to be focusing. And is it a case of... OK, actually, that's what we're putting out on the posters and doing all the comms about how we're in, uh, supporting them to grow their businesses with access to grants and, and, and everything else that is out there. And similarly, in the professions, I mean, uh, just picking on the one here in terms of journalism, you know, how's representation going there in STEM, in, you know, across the piece? We need more people like us that we, that we see one person doesn't make the difference. They aren't even as prime minister. They still need uh, cabinet ministers who will work alongside them. And they need their MPs to vote things through. And sometimes you also need MPs from other parties to help you vote things through you know and you need the journalists on your side too to communicate and pick up on what you're doing so it it doesn't rest with one person it is going to rest on who are we are we seen are we valued and that takes all of us working together and uh improving that representation across the board
3: um i i would 100% agree with what's been said i think the color of one's skin is of little exp- of significance if that individual is unable to, if, if they're actively implementing and supporting policies that worsen people's lives. Like what creates change is by placing the issues that communities face and putting it on the public agenda. That's what creates change. That's what improves people's lives. So if, if there's a if there's a white prime minister that's able to do that, great. Um, like Sean Bailey said, I want a Prime Minister who is good and who understands the lived experiences of people and understands the, the problems and the issues that face millions of people around the country, that understands the ambitions of small businesses, that understands what, uh, what people want to achieve in their lives. Um, And I will say this, the Conservative government are doing much better than other political parties. The Conservative Party are doing way better than Labour. Um, Labour can't even understand the the lived experiences of their Black members. And here the Conservatives are appointing Black cabinet members. But I will repeat this, if they are unable to place the issues that our community faces on the public agenda, then their skin colour means very little.
0: Thank you all. So, As this is a Black History Month podcast, I'm thinking a lot about what Jermaine said about positive change. And I wonder who is making, for for each of you, who is making positive change? Who is making black history now, making positive change for people in our communities? I know that Jermaine, you're part of the Baobab Foundation and um, Siobhan, you're part of the Black Equity Organization. Who are people that our listeners should go out and, and Google and research and see who are making positive change in our communities, who are making black history now?
3: I, I'll jump in real quick. I, I I don't want to fall into the trap of Black people having to educate everybody else about what Black people are doing. Um, you know where to find the information. Go ahead, Google it and find out the Black changemakers around, not only around the country, but around the world. But I, I will say this. After Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were murdered and we saw the calls for change and action on the streets of of Westminster and around the UK, I was away with a couple of other people. Um, creating the Bayabab Foundation, which is a black led funding body that funds grassroots organizations resisting racism. We've been able to generate a lot of money. We've just launched with £3.5 million. Registrations for expression have closed. But just from the intake, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of applicants of Black-led grassroots organisations around the country. And we're looking forward to to supporting those organisations. This was an initiative set up by Jake Ferguson, who many of you should be aware of. If you don't know who he is, definitely check it out. Um, Our website is bayababfoundation.org.uk. And yeah, we're prepared to do amazing things for communities up and down this country. And, and that's what change really looks like. And there are, in some cases, we can't always wait for the government, especially this right wing government, to, to, to provide any actions for us. So there are some, some times where we have to come together and use that pan-Africanist mindset and build together um, and provide together.
2: On my point of its collective enterprise, It isn't about one individual. Um, I definitely want to shout out the Black Equity Organization that was launched earlier this year. Uh, We are the UK's first civil rights organization really looking at how we can eradicate systemic racism. And it's starting from a possession of growing knowledge and having robust Data and robust understanding both in terms of lived experience as well as what uh, is out there um, from a more neutral position and they are equally valuable and important um, through the pillars of work in terms of economic empowerment and access to justice and representation and education. And so the Black Equity Organization, is an exciting opportunity for us as black people coming together, working together, taking everyone's strength in order to actually really create the new narrative going forward. And also going uh, to institutions that have been around for a while, let's not forget the Black Cultural Archive they are so important to not only our past but also our future to our understanding of who we are in in so many different ways and also who we can be and I know this year is their 40th anniversary so they'll be doing a lot I'm sure to celebrate that and then go and find your personal heroes as well.
1: I I would say for me Black History Month I'd like to dedicate it to black families if you see what both of our guests here have both said they are sort of preparing the ground for people to get involved and to do things but the the people actually do the work the recipients of, of that work is families and I tell you why I say this I see an increasing number Of black children outperforming Expectations And that's because they have their families behind them pushing them. And I think that's such a good thing. I'm a governor of a school and I'm watching um, our black students just do well, just because it's what they do. They have a very different take on what it is to be black. They haven't accepted the idea that they're victims. They haven't accepted the the idea that the whole world is out to get them. They've said, well, the world needs me and here's what I can contribute. And I think that's wonderful. I think the structure of black families and the work that black families are doing to say, actually, yes, there has been racism in the world. There's still plenty of realm but it doesn't mean I must be cowered by that racism I think is really really encouraging I mean you talk about people are slightly older so not children now so young black people the growing group of active black professional young black professionals is astonishing and what's really astonishing is their high level of ability. I don't know if you know about the Black Power List, but they've got a younger version that is just full of young black people who are just doing amazing things. And I don't, and here's the important thing I want you to take away. Not amazing because they're black, they're just amazing things, period. And to see the amount of young black people and families that are sticking together and communities that are built, being built on the back of that and are going out in the world and saying we're not just victims, actually we're contributors, we're leaders. leaders, for me makes it worth getting up in the morning.
0: That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com. And keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day-a-week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my fantastic guests, Sean Bailey, Siobhan Ahrens and Jermaine Jackman. Our editor was Laura Silver. And thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome, or email us via news at politicshome.com. I've been your host, Shan Mataluko, and this has been
1: The Rundown.